You're listening to Two Sides of Phi, a podcast that follows two lifelong friends as they seek financial independence and to retire early. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by my friend Jason, who reached Phi in 2020. And this is our story. Everybody, uh, Jason here from Two Sides of Phi. Got a couple things right off the top. First of all, you've probably noticed Eric is not here today. He's not on the screen. Uh, and that's because he was called away uh, last minute to deal with something. He's fine. Don't worry about that. Uh, because number two, uh, I'm very happy to be joined today by Sean Mullaney, who many of you in our audience likely know as the Phi Tax Guy from his blog of the same name. Now, Sean is a CPA. He's had a long career in public accounting at some very big name firms and uh, more recently has his own business where he works as a financial planner offering fiduciary fee only and advice only financial planning. Sean, I just want to welcome you to the show. Both Eric and I are very familiar with your very useful blog and appearances elsewhere, and I'm just glad to have the opportunity to speak with you. Jason, it's great to be here today. Looking forward to our conversation. Now, uh, a reminder that all of our listeners should be familiar with already, but of course, uh, our goal at Two Sides of Phi is to provide education, information, and if we do our job half right, entertainment. Uh, and this discussion, like any that we have here, is neither financial or legal advice. Of course, there are. Um, you can build relationships with others if you have questions about your own portfolio, but I still think you're going to find plenty of value in the things we talk about. Now, naturally, there are many areas in which taxes are essential to consider and plan for on either side of FI. And today, our aim is to you know, talk about some tax-related topics uh, that, that Eric and I have had and, and discussed either in part on the show or offline, but also some things that we see bubble up frequently in the community, whether it's on our channel or elsewhere. So um, maybe I'll just start with a, a big wide open question, Sean, if that's okay with you and say, you know, when you think about the FIRE community, a group you've interacted with plenty, um, what do you think are some of the big tax misunderstandings that are just commonly out there? I'll give you two, uh, Jason. <laughs> First is taxable assets are bad, right? And it turns out taxable assets are actually really good, particularly in early retirement. Why do I yeah. say that? First, it gives you runway. So when you're early retired and your your taxable income, it looks artificially low. So you, you start working on your tax return like, hey, wait a minute, I'm poor. I didn't know I was poor, <laughs> but the IRS at least thinks I'm poor. Right. Right. So drawing down on taxable assets can be very helpful for a couple reasons in early retirement one it helps you control your taxable income so you can do roth conversions you know you take your traditional retirement accounts and affirmatively transition those to roth accounts and maybe pay some tax on that yeah but you then have the tr the taxable assets to fall back on and live off of, right? Because we want to do tax planning, but we also want to have something to live off of, right? That's right. pretty important too in early retirement, right? You got to eat, right? <laughs> so that's one thing. Second thing about those taxable assets that I'd say is, guess what? They may not be all that taxed in early retirement. Why do I say that, right? If you own things like domestic equity mutual funds, international equity mutual funds, Yep. I think you're going to find that if you can keep your taxable income in the 12% federal bracket or lower, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have a situation where most of the dividends that are generated yep. qualify for the 0% 
uh, qualified dividend income tax rate and your capital gains will right. qualify for the 0% long-term rate. So I think, you know, it's both sides of phi, right? When yeah. we're in our early retirement, we should be thinking about living off those taxable assets first. And when we're before, when we're more like Eric, where we're trying to get to early retirement, we should be thinking about maybe we should be building up some of these taxable assets. So we have this in our early retirement. So our early retirement can look like I live off mostly my taxable assets and I keep my, you know, I manage my taxable income. So maybe I'm paying a 0% uh, tax rate on long-term capital gains, qualified dividend income. And then on the side, I'm doing some Roth conversions while I'm still getting the benefit of maybe the standard deduction, the 10% and the 12% bracket. So I think that is a big misconception out there that, oh, these taxable assets aren't so good. Well, I think early retirees are well advised to have at least some to start off that early retirement. Yeah, that that's a really great point. It, it certainly hits home for me because uh, you know, in, in early retirement, I am now 49, started when I was 47, stepped away from the workplace. Uh, I have a taxable brokerage account, and of course that is what I view. Some people call that a bridge strategy or, or other terms, but that is literally what I live on presently that my family's grocery bills are paid with, and so it, it certainly um, resonates with me. I think um, I do like that the idea of the 0% capital gain ceiling has become more widely known. It seems like something you hear, you know, actually spoken about now, which is great. But you also made a point there on the dividend side that there are considerations as well. And I think that's perhaps less understood. Is there a little more color you could add there about how that is to be the case, uh, you know, very often? Yeah, so we have to start off with the difference between interest income and dividend income, right? So interest yeah. income, generally speaking, comes from savings accounts, bonds, bond funds. Now, when you get it from a mutual fund, they call it a dividend, but right. it's really just interest, right? You report it as a dividend, but it's an ordinary dividend, does not get this qualified dividend income treatment. Uh, but when you have equities, right, so stocks of different companies, yes, and as long as you have a decent holding period on it, and it and it's either a U.S. company or a company headquartered in a country the United States has a income tax treaty with, which is most okay. of the big companies, but not all of them. Um, the dividends that flow through uh, every year on your tax return are called qualified dividend uh, right. income. And they are taxed like long-term capital gains. And so you may be familiar with, there's a, a rule in the tax laws now that says, okay, these long-term capital gains, if you're in the 12% or lower tax bracket, right? So you're, you've managed income in such a way, guess what? You get a 0% long-term capital gains tax rate, so your qualified dividends also suffer a 0% rate. Now, Jason, you're probably familiar with, in the great state of California, there's probably gonna be some California tax on that. That's right. But if you're managing income, you're actually gonna still be at a low California tax rate too. So it's not 100% free, although it depends where you live. If you're in Washington, Nevada, Tennessee, Florida, Texas, that could be a decent segment of the audience. Guess what? No state income tax either. So, um, you know, so these things can be uh, very impactful. And if you're able to live off these taxable assets, now you have this Roth conversion opportunity yep. because you don't, you know, it, it's one thing to say, oh, I got all my money in a traditional retirement account. Well, you might have to take money out to live off of, right? And you may not be able That's to right. do so much Roth conversion. 
But if you're taking money from a taxable account, so let's say, Jason, you and your wife live off $60,000 a year out of your taxable accounts. Well, if you take it from cash, there's no tax on that, right? Yep. There's no capital gain on cash. And oh, maybe Jason's sitting on a, a mutual fund, right? And he's got a $40,000 basis and it's now worth 60,000. Uh, maybe not a great 2022 hypothetical, but let's just <laughs> right. run with it, right? Well, the taxable income to Jason and his wife isn't 60,000, it's 20,000, 60,000 right. of uh, proceeds when you sell it, less the 40,000 of tax basis. Um, and, and there are a number of reasons why I, I've got a thesis that says, yeah, let's spend down those taxable assets first. Part of the reason is because that basis is getting inflated away right. over time, right? Jason's $40,000 basis in the year 2022 is worth more to him than his $40,000 basis in the year 2032. So why not sell while that basis is high in terms of inflation? Uh, I think that is, uh, you know, that's another opportunity presented by using those taxable assets yeah. first in early retirement. That, that's a great point. And and this whole topic and, and Roth is something I, I have some other questions on, but it fits nicely into a recent post of yours that I, I quite liked and I'm going to link in the show notes. I think it was uh, called or it was about tax optimized drawdown strategies in, in early retirement. And these are a couple of them. Um, on the topic of Roth conversions, I know that there's not going to be a well, I suspect you're not going to be able to give me a very, very simple answer for this, and it's not going to apply to every situation. But I do think there's a lot of confusion, at least I, this is my read, about Roth conversions and early retirement and how to really think about them. You know, yes, there's the, the tax now versus tax later aspect, and that's really one of the central issues. Um, and if you're managing your income, right, how much conversions to do. But I guess my question at high level is, how would you guide people to think about Roth conversions and what kind of work should each of us do um, to think about our own situation and how Roth conversions, you know, could be a sensible strategy for us to investigate or otherwise. Great question, Jason. So I would start with the process and then we can talk about some okay. you know, guardrails. So for the early retiree, I would recommend doing the Roth conversions in the fourth quarter. Why do I say that? So October, November, December. First reason I say that is that Roth conversions are not reversible. It right. used to be that they were reversible. You could do something called a recharacterization, and there was a right. game to be played with that. That game has been you know, canceled, right? One, the <laughs> right. second you do that Roth conversion, that's it. It's a Roth conversion. It's taxable. So I don't like this, this idea of let's wake up on New Year's Day, log into our account, oh, yeah. and do Roth conversions, right? You know, in theory, there's an academic argument to do that because you get more time of tax-free growth. But I like flexibility. Yes. So if I'm an early retiree, what I do is at the beginning of the fourth quarter, I look at, hey, what, what did the, have the previous nine months looked like, right? Did I have some maybe part-time self-employment income or W-2 income? Is there any pension income going on here? What have the interest, dividends, capital gains looked like during the year? And what can I expect for October, November, December? I've got at least some visibility into that. Heck, I could just pull up last year's brokerage account and say, oh, December of last year, this thing paid a 2% dividend. Well, what might that look like this year? Maybe I'd be a little right. conservative, right? And I can essentially start in a spreadsheet constructing my tax return for this year. And what I do is I start constructing that uh, tax return in a spreadsheet 
And separately, I Google the IRS tax brackets and the standard deduction, assuming I'm taking the standard deduction, 90% yep. of Americans now do. So that's a decent assumption, right? Your mileage may vary. But I start putting this all together and say, well, wait a minute, where am I on the, you know, where am I in terms of what my tax return is going to look like without additional planning? And how much runway might I have, say, in the 10% tax bracket, the 12% tax bracket? And maybe I start doing some Roth conversions to fill those things up. Now, that's a basic process. Some things to be considered, right? One is the further you are, are away from that 72, the more impactful the Roth conversions can be. Because part of what right. we're trying to do is hive down our traditional accounts so that we have lower required minimum distributions, the dreaded RMDs in our 70s, 80s, and 90s, right? Yeah. So boy, I'm early retired, I'm 49 years old, I get just a little bit from traditional to Roth this year, that's gonna help my future self and perhaps my spouse right after my death because there'll be less RMD to be taken in the 70s and 80s. That's one thing to think about. Another thing to think about is something called the premium tax credit. Now look, if you're not on an Affordable Care Act plan, you don't need to think about this, right? Right, right? But many early retirees find themselves on on an Affordable Care Act medical insurance plan, including Jason. Yeah. And this is actually a little bit of a double-edged sword, right? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so on the bad on the on the side we don't like is for many early retirees, Roth conversions are going to suffer a reduction in this premium tax credit. The premium tax credit is generally based on income. Right. And the higher we juice up our income, the lower our premium tax credit is going to be. And for many Americans, as a very rough rule of thumb, we may suffer a 10 to 15 percent surtax on our Roth conversions because every dollar of Roth conversion creates modified adjusted gross income, which lowers by roughly speaking 10 to 15 cents on the dollar that premium tax credit. So that's something to consider. Yes. However, I said it's a double-edged sword. On the other side, we may need to do Roth conversions to qualify for a premium tax credit. Well, what the heck is that about? <laughs> yeah. The rules say that if one qualifies for Medicaid in uh, California, it's called Medi-Cal, I believe, right? Yep. So if yep. one qualifies for Medicaid, and that's determined based on income in each state, there's some variability there, then one does not qualify for a premium tax credit. So in theory, somebody who doesn't have enough income can't get a premium tax credit. Now, in theory, they could still have the ACA plan, but that's a full freight charge, Right. A family, you know, of four could be paying twenty thousand plus for medical insurance with no subsidy on this premium tax credit. That's a really bad outcome. Right. So and, and most folks do not want to be on Medicaid. Doctors don't like Medicaid because it reimburses low. And, you know, so you now don't get the best of attention. You know, that's a whole other conversation. But generally speaking, most early retirees do not want to be on Medicaid. Right. So what you can do is you can affirmatively do these Roth conversions and create taxable income, create MAGI, and now you get above your state's threshold to not qualify for Medicaid. Exactly. I believe in California, it's 138% of federal poverty level. Um, I was looking at the numbers recently. In California, if you're a family of four in the year 2023, 
to get off Medi-Cal, which is essentially California's Medicaid, you're going to need something like $40,000 worth of income, right? Yeah. Below 40000 for that family of four, they're on Medi-Cal and can't get an ACA premium tax credit. So how would an early retiree in that situation create the income to get off Medi-Cal and turn on premium tax credits so we get on our ACA plan and get a big juicy premium tax credit so our premiums are very low, do some Roth conversions, yeah. right? You, you know, you have this ability to create taxable income and control income. So it's these Roth conversions, when we marry them with the early retiree premium tax credit are a bit of a double-edged sword. And so you gotta do your own analysis, but yes. really sort of an interesting time to be an early retiree, let's put it that way. It is. No, I and I appreciate that level of detail. I, I think that a lot of people on the fire path, particularly those much younger, um, aren't thinking about all of those issues. And, you know, it's something Eric and I have talked about a lot on the show, because I, I think there is a balancing act that is essential to do. And that's, a, you know, a very tight way of wrapping up uh, something that you explained in much better detail. But, you know, you do have these different factors you need to think about. And it's a privilege to be able to have the opportunity to think about these factors, but it doesn't make it any less important to think about where am I from a total income perspective? What is looming in, in, in the future in terms of potential required minimum distributions do I have an outsized you know IRA account or you know 401k any of these accounts that are going to be subject to RMDs um, what am I doing for health insurance how do I think about all of those things um, for me what I have found to keep my mind at ease and I'm not saying this is the only way to do it but from what you've just said Sean it sounds like you might not disagree I have a spreadsheet going all year and any income that we generate, whether it's from dividends or whether it's from the one day a week fund job that my wife and I each have, um, anything like that just goes into this one spreadsheet and I can see um, where I am so that by December, when I talk to my CPA, because I'll, you know, full disclosure here, I do see the value in talking to somebody who's a tax expert. And um, that makes me also sleep a little better. I'm not going to make a huge mistake. But, you know, just like you suggested in that fourth quarter, um, for me, my meeting is early December. I'm going to know where I am with income. I have some line of sight on the um, dividends that still haven't manifested in December. And will be the best armed to make a decision about Roth conversions for this year. And I already know what the, the um, you know, the limits look like in terms of ACA and, you know, how I want to think about that. So it is a little bit of work to do. I was just talking to my wife about this uh, yesterday, um, but it's well worth it to do this little bit of legwork. And, you know, yeah, getting help can really make sure that you feel confident about it. But, you know, there is none of it's particularly complex, but it, it's it's all important. Yeah. And Jason, you mentioned in a previous episode that I believe you have a high deductible health plan through the exchange. Is that correct? That's so correct. the HSA, you have an opportunity. So one cool thing about the HSA is you don't have to be working to contribute to an HSA and get that tax deduction. Right. So, you know, well, I'm not giving you personal advice here, yep. but boy, you you have a nice little tactic there where you're saying, OK, I'm going to contribute to an HSA, which lowers my income. And then maybe you could do, say, more Roth conversions. And, you know, you're essentially getting two benefits there. You're getting money to an HSA yes. tax-free growth. That's fantastic. And then that can shelter another 7,700, 8,700, whatever it might be in your case, uh, in your case, 7,700 probably. But, you know, you can shelter another 7,750 of 
Roth conversion by that HSA contribution. Now, don't get me started on California and HSA. That's a different conversation. <laughs> yes, but and New Jersey. You're getting a big tax. <laughs> yeah, you're getting a big tax benefit. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, you know, despite our delightful weather, uh, we don't not getting the triple tax advantage on the HSA is something I like to think someday <laughs> will change. But I'm not holding my breath. For those, whether they're early retirees or, or otherwise, you know, just what are things that you think people need to make sure they're cognizant of when they think about end year tax planning and that being wrapping up the current tax year as well, and prepare, as, well as preparing for uh, the next year ahead? Yeah, I, I, a couple things on that, Jason. One, the best planning is lifetime planning. It sounds like you yourself are doing lifetime planning, right? It's great to optimize for any one particular tax year, but the best planning is you know year-round and holistic type tax planning. That said, I want I think you should be thinking about a couple of things. One is, what does this year look like versus the next few years? Is this year yeah. unique in any way? Did I get a huge bonus at work? Am I going to early retire next year? Um, you know, am I taking a big charitable deduction? Those sorts of things. You just want to think about: Is this year a little different in either direction? Yeah. And that then can inspire some year-end planning. Uh, another thing to be thinking about at year-end is, am I going to be taking the standard deduction or am I going to be doing itemized deductions? And am I on the precipice? Am I close? Now, look, 90% of Americans now take the standard deduction, so there may not be a ton of planning that can be done here. But maybe you add up your home mortgage interest, your state income tax, which is or your state taxes, which is now capped at 10000 per return. And your charitables that you've made during the year, and you say, "Boy, I'm really close." Those things add up to almost the standard deduction. Right. Well, you could think about things like a donor advised fund. That's one of my favorite little tactics out there. Yeah. Where, hey, I'm otherwise charitably inclined. You know, so maybe every week I give to my church, or I have favorite charities I give to every year. And so what I can do is I can accelerate the deduction for those contributions by parking the money in a so-called donor advised fund. So I contribute to that. I take a tax deduction this year for that. And then over the next three, four, five years, I dole out the money to the charity in the normal course of how I would have otherwise done it. So the charity sees very little difference. Mm -hmm. What you're, you see is you get a deduction up front. So you now have this one year where, hey, I've got this big, nice, juicy tax deduction. And then in the following years, you just go back to the standard deduction because you were probably going to be taking that anyway. You're going to be real right. close to that anyway. And it's a way of moving. It's a way of increasing a deduction, but also moving it into uh, into the present as opposed to having it be in the future. Uh, so it's a way to, to juice tax deductions. And then one other piece on that uh, donor advised fund is if, if you're sitting on an appreciated stock position, you might want to donate the appreciated stock. So, yeah. you know, you bought tech company stock 40 years ago. It's gone through the roof. You got this big capital gain. Nobody wants to pay capital gains tax. Right. Well, instead of selling that stock and donating, donating money to a charity, maybe you take 10 shares of it, put it in the donor yeah. advised fund. You get to take the tax deduction at your at the fair market value, so at today's value. Right. But you uh, one, yeah, so you get that deduction, and two, you wash away that capital gain. So that could be something to be thinking about. So yeah, for year end, I'd be thinking about is this year different from other years, and does that drive some tax planning? And really be thinking about that standard deduction versus those itemized deductions. 
Hey, Eric here with Two Sides of Fi, checking in with a quick request. Jason and I love making this show and sharing our conversations, but we need your help spreading the word. The best way to do that is to give us a quick rating and review on your podcast app of choice. And if you know someone on the Fi path, please hit that share button on your favorite episode. Every little bit helps. Thanks. It does remind me of one other uh you know, tax year related topic that I, I think is important to consider and, and certainly has been on many people's minds and many different, you know, uh, financial uh, content creators uh, uh, episodes uh, in recent months. And that's tax loss harvesting. Now, that's a topic oh, yes. we've talked about on this show before. Eric and I have both, unfortunately, uh, like many people, had the plenty of opportunity to do tax loss harvesting this year, you know, capturing those losses, either to offset uh, gains, not so much this year, or in future years, as well as ordinary income. But uh, you caught my eye on uh, this idea of uh, specific bond-related strategies where tax loss harvesting can uh, can be very relevant. Maybe you yeah, talk so about it's that. Kind of using tw- bonds to optimize. Sorry, I didn't. I worded yeah, that poorly. Yeah, so you know, it's the year 2022, and lots of folks have losses in their portfolios. Right. And one area where this can come up is bond funds, right? If you think about end of year, even in 2020, right? Not too many people had losses, even at the end of 2020 in their bonds. Maybe they had some losses or some very small losses. This year, a bunch of folks have some built-in losses in their taxable brokerage accounts in bond funds. Well, this creates a little bit of an opportunity, a two birds, one stone type opportunity. Let's think about bonds for a second. Bonds are sort of leaky, right, from a tax perspective. They generally have higher yields than equities. So, right, for example, I own $1,000 of a stock mutual fund. It probably pays maybe a 2% dividend yield. So that's $20 of income. If I own 1,000 of a bond fund, it might pay like 3%. So that's maybe $30 of income. So it tends to produce more taxable income than equities. The other thing it tends to produce, like we talked about earlier, is ordinary income. So right. you basically tack on that income at my highest marginal rate, and that's the, the tax rate I pay on that, versus if I'm in an equity fund, I pay that qualified dividend income rate on most of the income. So maybe I can get a little better in, in two ways here. Maybe mm-hmm. I find a bond fund in my taxable portfolio that has a built-in loss. I sell that. Now I trip a capital loss. I put that on my tax return that can shelter other capital gains. I can deduct that against other ordinary income up to $3,000 every year. And the unused losses go to next year. I'll deal with it then, but that's a $3,000 potential tax deduction. Okay. That's nice. But I also get a second benefit, which is I get that $30 of interest income every year in my thousand dollar example off my tax return. And maybe I reallocate in the taxable brokerage account into equities, right? So now I'm putting Instead of $1,000 generating $30 of ordinary income, maybe $1,000 is generating $20 of qualified dividend income. So I'm a little better on my tax return. And this doesn't mean I necessarily have to change my portfolio allocation. Right. Right. So what I could do is look to my 401k or my traditional IRA and see if I could maybe do the, the opposite transaction in there. Now, I have to navigate this wash sale rule in terms of the loss. Yes. But- Maybe I can find a somewhat different uh, bond fund and essentially buy, you know, take some equities, sell those in my traditional IRA or my 401k and buy this different bond fund. And now I haven't changed my portfolio allocation, 
but I've put more of my bonds in my traditional retirement accounts where it's going to be ordinary income anyway. I don't right. care about, you know, so it's going to be ordinary income anyway. And I get to defer at least to 72. I have at least some control over that. Right. I, yes, RMDs, but I, a tax defer is a tax cut. So that's good. And then in my taxable, I'm generating this qualified dividend income, which is going to be better on my tax return. Right. So two birds, one stone. I just think right. this year, 2022, is the year of bond and bond fund tax loss harvesting for at least some Americans. You know, one of the things that viewers of our show uh, will likely have picked up on over time is the different paths that Eric and I each took to FI. Uh, and my show partner, Eric, uh, while he started his career in, in traditional architecture practice, eventually went out on his own, started his own business, which he still very much operates today, although the, the uh, breadth of things that uh, his business covers these days in terms of content creation and education and all these other angles uh, is very much a real thing, uh, is a strong believer in solo 401ks and the extreme value that they have for uh, solo entrepreneurs. And in fact, you've written a book on this topic, so I have the expert in front of me. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your your recently uh, published book, Sean, uh, and how 401, solo 401ks are uh, a tool that more people need to be thinking about who have their own businesses? Yeah, thanks, Jason. So I like to say with the solo, uh, the solo 401k, I'm both a pusher and a user, right? And it okay. reflects my story in terms of, you know, until age 40, I worked a W-2 job. I had a career at large employers, great and then I made a transition and I started working for myself. And right. when you work for yourself, you don't get that email from HR saying, hey, here's our 401k plan. Please right. pick your investment allocation and your contribution percentage. That doesn't yeah. happen, right? But that said, when you work for yourself and you qualify for the solo 401k, which most people who work for themselves do, not everybody, right? And I talk about that in the book, but most folks who work for themselves qualify for this thing it gives you tremendous opportunity in a number of ways. I'll just mention two here. One is now you get to pick the investments and the financial institution, right? So when you work at a large employer, great, um, but you're limited to their financial provider and right. the, the 20 or 30 investments on the menu, right? Now that you control the solo 401k, you can go find the provider, you can go pick the investments, you know, control the fees, Solo 401ks tend to have very low fees. It's you know right. it's a really good opportunity for solopreneurs. The second thing is now you're in control of the contribution level in two ways, right? One, you have those employee contributions, just like you had at the old job, right? That's fine. That's tremendous. And for the year 2023, it's 22,500 max as an employee contribution, up that to 30,000 if we're age 50 or more. So that's that's good. That's where solo 401k looks very much like the large employer 401k. Great, employee contributions, got it. Well, what about those employer contributions? Remember those matching contributions at work? They're great. Uh, think about W-2 worker, $100,000 worth of salary. And the employer says, you know what we're gonna do? On the first 6% of salary, we'll offer you a 50 cents on the dollar match. Right. That's great. I'm gonna take a, a gamble here and do a little math on a podcast. $100,000, 6% match, 50 cents on the dollar is $3,000 by my math, right? That's Believe great. Right. That's fan <laughs> that's fantastic. $3,000 from my large employer into my 401k. Well, guess what? 
when you're working for yourself and you have this solo 401k, you can do a lot more, right? The only constraints you have are one, your cash flow. to be fair, right? We can't put a billion dollars in there because we don't have a billion dollars in right. Um, and the IRS limits. And generally speaking, that per same person, if they're Schedule C now, they're self-employed, they're working for themselves, as an employer, they could put another 18,500 into the solo 401k. So that's a big advantage to yeah. those folks. That person could get in the year 2023, they're under 50 years old, something like $41,000 into the solo 401k. They couldn't have done that at their workplace. And by the way, we love to talk about limits, right? Particularly in the personal finance space. What's the limit? How much can I do? Well, maybe you can't do the limit and that's okay too, right? So maybe one right. year it's 10,000, the next year it's 15,000, the next year it's, you know, 41,000, 45,000, right? Maybe we go to the limit the next year. These solo 401ks are just a tremendous opportunity in terms of tax savings, which is great, but also getting a big retirement account that could then fund maybe like an early retirement or geo arbitrage or whatever it might be. Uh, you know, I think this is just an opportunity that for whatever reason has not gotten enough attention. That's part of the reason I wrote the book. And a, a SEP IRA, are there times where that makes sense? Is it in income related? And I, I know every individual situation is different, but at least relating it to this conversation about a solo 401k. Great question, Jason. So I think for most solopreneurs who qualify for both the solo 401k and the yeah. older SEP IRA, the solo 401k is preferable. Why is that? Right. Main reason is just contribution limits, right? So SEP IRAs and solo 401ks are identical in that they have employer contributions, right? So in that $100,000 Schedule C income example, we're looking at 18,500 and change in terms of a max SEP IRA contribution or solo 401k employer contribution. Okay, great. You know, um, but where the difference comes in is this employee contribution. Okay. Where the solo 401k has employee contributions could be up to 22,500 in the year 2023, up that to 30,000 if we're 50 or older. SEP IRA doesn't have that employee contribution. So for many solopreneurs, the solo 401k is just going to offer a much higher limit in terms of what we can get in there. Now, does that mean the SEP IRA is always the wrong answer? No. Uh, for example, let me, I'll give you one example where maybe the SEP IRA is just as good, uh, maybe a side hustler. Okay. So, you know, someone has a W-2 job with a large employer. They've got a good 401k, you know, low fees, you know, good investments. The person is just perfectly happy maxing out 22.5 in the employee contribution to the workplace 401k. Well, okay. If you do that, that means the only contribution on the table for the side hustle, solo 401k or SEP IRA is an employer contribution. So in that case, there's not going to be any difference between a solo 401k and a SEP IRA in terms of contribution limits. And if you're, you know, you're not worried about some other tax planning, something like the backdoor Roth IRA, then the SEP IRA is just fine. And, you know, okay, go for it. Um, so there can be times where the SEP IRA, and I will say administratively, the SEP IRA is a little easier to manage. Not that okay. the solo 401k is splitting atoms, but it does require a little bit more administrative detail 
an attention than a SEP IRA. So there can be times, particularly in the side hustle context, where maybe the SEP IRA is a little better. But for many solopreneurs, I think the solo 401k is the winner just because of those contribution limits. Great. No, that really helps, uh, actually. It's I find, uh, you know, with all these different... Uh, all these different retirement vehicles, there are a lot of questions out there. I suspect you probably spend a decent amount of time fielding questions like that. Um, you know, one, it's it's a little tangential to this, but uh, one that I see come up all the time is even just how people can begin that thought process of, well, what is my prioritization uh, of yes. different types of accounts? And I know asset location isn't a trivial, you know, thing to just, you know, put a nice little bow on because uh, there's a lot of reasons you might have, you know, access to certain things and not others. And maybe this 401k plan makes sense. and I'm going to maximize that. But like, when do I think about the Roth? Um, and I don't know if there's a kind of an easy way to tee that up, at least to help people go do the research they need to do. But your thoughts on that, I think, would be really helpful. Yeah, and, and of course, I'm going to toot my own horn. I'm shameless, right? So I do have a <laughs> blog post on phytaxguy.com uh, on fire tax strategies for beginners, right? So that's a that's a resource. Look, there are other resources out there as well. I would start with the idea of the employer match, right? Most okay, beginners yeah. are not self-employed. Now, some are, right? And you know, there are resources such as my book. But let's say most folks are just starting off W two job. The first thing you want to be thinking about is that employer match, right? So right. in your 401k, like I said, maybe they say for the first 3% of income, we'll match dollar for dollar or 50 cents on the dollar or 25 cents on the dollar. Well, that's free money. And that's right. an instantaneous return. And nobody's going to beat an instantaneous return. So you might as well get that, you know, grab that. And oh, by the way, you're now building up some savings because you put your own skin in that game, right? So uh, that's that's where I would start. And then I would think about something like a Roth IRA, particularly as a beginner. The Roth IRA is, you know, it's tax-free growth and it can do some double duty. Not that we want it to do double duty, but it can. And that is as an emergency fund as we're building up our wealth. Because you can withdraw your old contributions to a Roth IRA at any time for any reason, tax and penalty free. And they come out first under the distribution ordering rules. Okay. So look, you can take your, your old Roth IRA contributions out of your Roth IRA, go to Vegas and blow them gambling, right? You should not do that. Right, right. right. I would agree. <laughs> But what if you had a real emergency? Maybe what you what yeah. you do in life is you start building up that Roth, you start stabilizing your finances, and then on the side, you start building up the emergency fund. Look, emergency funds have a role, and I'm not here to tell any particular person in this audience should you prioritize emergency fund over Roth, but I think you can think about, well, wait a minute, the Roth could be my emergency fund, at least for part of my life. Not necessarily an optimal way to approach things, but it, it's a possible way to do it. So I would say, you know, start by thinking about the employer match and then start thinking about things like a Roth IRA. Those are like to get your feet wet way, uh, ways of proceeding. And once your feet are wet, you're gonna find all of this becomes easier. Not that you're an expert, not right. that this is no, no more research, no more analysis, but boy, just those two things alone can really get you going in terms of your financial future. 
for people on a fire path, you know, yeah. just what, what are some examples of things where they may want to do a check-in with an advice-only planner that you think the value provided can certainly, you know, well outweigh, you know, the expense? Because there is an expense to working with anybody who's providing a service to you, but that value, you know, has to be realized. So what are some areas where yeah. you think people might not even be considering where you could, someone like yourself could add value? Yeah, and, and just to be abundantly clear, Jason, by your asking me, you're not endorsing me or my firm. You're just yeah. asking for a perspective, right? Absolutely. And I think that's Absolutely. great. So I would say two things. One, you want to be thinking about the different areas of your financial life, and then you want to be thinking about the, the um, gating decisions, right? So um, I think financial planning got this sort of investment focus over time. Oh, yeah. And frankly... To my mind, investments are just one aspect of our financial lives. And I don't even know that financial planners add that much value there, to be honest with you. Um, look, financial planners have great insights and can add some value, but boy, in that investment space, the value add, I think, is somewhat limited. Yeah. Um, I think you want to be thinking about where am I in my life on things like estate planning? Yeah. things like insurance planning, things where things could go a little south in my life. And do I have some knowledge here? Have I worked with other professionals here? Right. And if I have, great, right? And I'm confident with my um, my situation, my arrangements. I don't have much gaps. And look, I, you know, it's hard to say, you know, whether you do or don't, but you can do some of your own analysis in that regard. And if you say, boy, I never even thought about doing insurance planning or what gaps I might have in my life or what happens with my assets if I die and what about my little kids and all that. Boy, that might mean you might want to call up an advice-only financial planner and get some some strategic advice in those regards, right? Yeah. And, if, and financial planners you know, don't write wills, don't write trusts, don't sell insurance, but they can help from a strategic perspective be someone to say, well, strategically, this is what I'd want to have in place. You now might need to go consult with a second professional, a lawyer, an insurance salesman. That's okay too. Um, so that's one area where it's, you want to look at where are you today and just how, how comfortable are you with where you are today? And then the second thing is gating decisions, right? So things like hey, you know what? I might be six months out from an early retirement. Maybe now is the time I have a advice-only financial planner go through my numbers, go through my situation, go through my gaps, insurance, estate, uh, drawdown strategy, whatever it might be. And that could be a time too. So when these gating decisions come up, am I going to uh, early retire? Am I going to start a new business? you know, is my business growing, right? So maybe right. I've, I went out in self-employment for the couple for first couple of years, I'm struggling along and now year three, things are popping. Well, that could mean you need a new financial plan. Maybe I'm thinking about something like a rental real estate uh, venture or something like that. Right. Maybe now's the time to um, assist, right? So um, yeah, it's hard for me to say, okay, here's exactly when you need a financial plan sure. or when you don't. And DIY is perfectly, you know, legitimate. And frankly, everybody who has a financial planner is doing some DIY to Absolutely. some extent, right? Because I like to tell clients, uh, I'm the advisor, you're the boss, right? So I can make whatever recommendations I want to make. At the end of the day, they themselves have to say, well, I agree or I disagree. Right. And hopefully they understand why they agree or disagree. 
I'm very appreciative that you've given up so much of your time, Sean. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we will uh, certainly put a link to the book in the show notes. I wish you all the best with it. It's clearly a great resource. I'm convinced of the value of a solo 401k. Uh, we'll certainly describe some of your other episodes as well uh, uh, of your show, of YouTube, uh, as well as some of your blog posts. Uh, definitely encourage people to check them out. From my observations in uh, all social media, Reddit, discords anywhere i spend time in the fi community there are many many tax questions and clearly uh your blog is a great resource so would highly recommend people check it out and check out the book and thank you again sean really appreciative of your time um and uh thank you for what you do for the community jason so great to chat with you today thanks so much for having me join us as the conversation continues next time on two sides of fi if you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For show notes, resources, and links to the video version, please check out our website at twosidesoffi.com.